Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, a conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. I'm your host, Ian Gillespie, and I'm here to ask the questions and find the answers you need to know. We want to help our listeners know how to prevent and detect illness and how to navigate our healthcare system. Be sure to subscribe to the Doc Talks podcast to stay up to date on new episodes and follow us on Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Hello, I'm Ian Gillespie. Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast brought to you by St. Joseph's Healthcare London. According to the Cleveland Clinic, a human heart beats about 100,000 times per day. It's the size of two hands clasped together, weighs less than a pound, pumps 5.7 liters of blood every minute through about 96,000 kilometers of blood vessels and is the muscle keeping us all alive. Knowing that, it's sobering to think that heart disease is the leading cause of death around the world and in women can often go undiagnosed. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Ashley Heidema, cardiologist in the Cardiac Rehabilitation and Secondary Prevention Program at St. Joseph's Healthcare London and an assistant professor in the Department of Cardiology at Western University. Dr. Heidema, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. So let's start, if we may, just talking about some of the, I think a lot of us are familiar with sort of, I guess, a vascular heart disease condition, but there are many, I suppose, different sorts of diseases and conditions affecting the heart. Can we talk a bit about what those are? Yeah, so I think the most common form of cardiovascular disease and heart disease that we see in women is uh, atherosclerotic heart disease, which is the most common reason why people have heart attacks. There's certainly many other types of valvular heart disease and other types of heart attacks that can affect women that don't necessarily come from our typical plaque. And those types of heart attacks tend to be more common in women than they do in a male population. And I, I know that for years we've talked about how women often go undiagnosed. Are women more susceptible to various forms of heart disease? So not necessarily um, more susceptible. I think it is an under-recognized cause of death and morbidity in women. And it does tend to affect women and men at different times in their lives. So generally women tend to get heart disease later on in life. And they do tend to not necessarily present or recognize the symptoms that are associated with heart disease as typically as men do. So we've all heard of kind of the Hollywood description of a heart attack, you know, crushing chest pain, hand on the center of the chest. That's still likely the most common presentation that we see in both men and women in terms of heart disease. But there are many other ranges of symptoms and side effects that we can see when women present with heart disease that can go unrecognized. So for example, it can be a pressure, it can be a burning sort of heartburn-like sensation, it can sometimes be in the jaw or the neck or the back or into the arm. And we can often hear that symptoms such as dizziness or diaphoresis or sweating and 
unusual fatigue, just feeling unwell can also be presenting symptoms. So these are things that we hear more commonly in women rather than the, the typical Hollywood heart attack and can often cause people to attribute them to other illnesses and other processes going on. It's not to say that these symptoms can be absent in men because they absolutely can present in men as well. It just tends to be more common in women. And there's many factors that lead to the later diagnosis. Yeah, you're saying some of the symptoms are different in women. Does that account for the fact that uh, women are often diagnosed with a heart condition? It certainly can contribute to it. As I mentioned, sometimes their symptoms aren't that typical heart attacks. People don't think of the heart when they have persistent symptoms that are different than what we expect. There's also a number of factors that tend to lead to women being underdiagnosed or presenting later, and it can be associated a bit with when uh, women typically seek care, which tends to be later on after the disease symptoms have presented. And also that this perception with not only the public, but also healthcare that women are less likely to present with heart issues. Right. And I'm just looking at some of the notes that uh, my producer Kelsey has assembled here. And I was sort of surprised by this. In women, heart disease tends to appear in the smaller blood vessels of the heart rather than the major coronary arteries. Is that is that correct? I wouldn't say rather, but it's definitely yeah. a, a high component of women that do present with microvascular disease. So we see that sort of other heart attack type I alluded to that's not necessarily due to plaques and blockages in the main arteries, but we can see more microvascular, so those small vessels, we can see little blockages and dysfunction. And that's a bit harder to recognize and a bit harder to treat. So when we have chest pain that's due to our typical atherosclerotic plaque. We're very good at being able to treat you with medications, treat you quickly with interventional procedures like angiograms or surgery when necessary. But microvascular disease is, is more difficult to diagnose. We can rule out some of the big problems like blockages in the main arteries, but it can be more difficult to see and treat these. And we don't have our typical, you know, go in and fix it kind of treatments for those diseases. There are advances that are coming along in functional imaging with MRIs to look more closely at how regional blood flow happens within the heart muscle. And I think as that technology becomes more available in Canada and more commonly used, we may have more treatment and sometimes just disease identification is, is really the main goal to, to help people understand their heart disease better. Sure. And what about risk factors and or causes? Do they, I mean, I guess there's some of the normal ones that we are aware of, smoking and the high blood pressure and so forth. Can we talk about that and, and how they may differ uh, from men? Yeah, absolutely. So certainly about 80% of all kind of coronary artery disease or atherosclerotic disease is preventable if, by controlling risk factors. So this is something I'm very passionate about. It's a huge area of my practice. I spend a lot of time talking about primary and secondary prevention. So when it comes to women, there certainly are unique factors that we think about. And, and the first one is pregnancy. So it's sort of a coin that's been termed more recently, but pregnancy is sort of nature's stress test. So it's a nine month period of time where women are under more stress and it does have predictive value for the future, depending on how the patient tolerates that stress. 
So high blood pressure or preeclampsia and pregnancy, gestational diabetes, preterm birth, those things can all really impact people's future cardiovascular risk. And until more recently, that wasn't really something we recognized. We figured if your blood pressure got better after pregnancy, if your gestational diabetes got better after pregnancy, then you're out of the woods. But really, it can be quite a significantly higher risk of cardiovascular disease later on in life. Some other unique risk factors to women have to do with conditions related to menstruation and menopause. So we know that during the younger period of life after menarche or after your first menstruation and before menopause, the ovaries are producing estrogen and that type of estrogen seems to be protective. But if you have either a shorter period of time, so if you have early menopause or later time of onset of first menstruation, then that time period can be altered. And so those sort of alterations or, or lessening of that time period can increase the cardiovascular risk later on. So hmm. someone who goes into premature menopause before the age of 45 has about a 50% chance at increased risk of heart disease. And what about family history? I, I understand. I'm sure that that plays a big role. Yeah. So family history is also a big role. I think when we think about family history, generally we think more about premature coronary artery disease. So I would say this is probably independent of sex at birth, but we see that certainly if we have uh, women under 60 or men under 50, they have an increased risk. And we often talk about first degree relatives. So mother, father, sisters, or brothers who have any of those risk factors will certainly have an issue that we want to be aware of when we're considering risk in their family members. There was one female specific risk factor I didn't get a chance to mention, and that's also someone with polycystic ovarian syndrome. So this is a specific syndrome involving many ovarian cysts and has to do with some hormone alterations as well. And that also so is uh, a risk factor for premature coronary disease. Also, is it true that heart disease can affect some, I guess, nationalities, ethnic groups more than others? Absolutely. So we're just, you know, really starting to understand how specifically the different populations and ethnicities affect overall outcomes, therapies. And as there's less research in women in cardiovascular disease, which is one of the big negative factors about our large breadth of research is more recently, we've just been starting to include 50% women. There's also less representation for the minorities in research. So certainly North American-led research. Unfortunately, there's you know very robust research happening across the world in cardiovascular disease. So the South Asian population is certainly one of the most recognized populations with premature coronary disease. There's certain groups of populations. So certainly, our compatriots out in uh, Newfoundland, there's a very high risk of coronary artery disease in Atlantic provinces. Uh, and that probably has to do sort of with a gene pool effect. But there's definitely pockets and families that can have higher risk of cardiovascular disease on top of also where people come from and what their background is. And then, so let's talk a little bit about prevention strategies. You go through some of the things that you can do to, to prevent a heart attack. 
So we always think about it in terms of kind of modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. And so those non-modifiable risk factors are things like sex and age and, you know, your family history. Those are things we can't change. But that 80% I had mentioned about kind of reducing your risk is really related to those modifiable risk factors. So you mentioned some before. So blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, body weight, smoking, those things are all factors that can be managed by lifestyle modifications. So certainly quitting smoking at any age is is a great help to reducing future risk. Not starting smoking is even better, but sometimes that's not always an option for people at this point, but it's certainly becoming less frequent. More now we think about vaping and vaping Mm. nicotine and the risks that are associated with that. Certainly uh, there's much more research to come out sort of on the long-term effects. And we have some uh, researchers in our division and at Lawson who are working on some information around how that vaping affects cardiovascular disease outcomes, but it doesn't look good so far. So certainly something to consider and avoid. Cholesterol is a big one. And really for cholesterol and diabetes, it starts with being aware that those are risk factors and making sure sure to see your general practitioner, your family doctor, your nurse practitioner to be screened for diabetes and high cholesterol. And generally, they recommend people start at the age of 45 to 50 or those with a family history should start at 40 or about 10 years before their primary relative or their first degree relative has had an event. And one of the reasons why this is so important, and especially in Canada, is because there is a significant impact of having familial hypercholesterolemia. So high cholesterol that runs in families, there's a few different genetic ways that this can be a problem. And when it's identified, we have excellent medications that can do a very good job of treating it. But without identifying it, obviously, it puts people at very high risk. So in addition to studying the effects of uh, tobacco and, and, and various vaping products, are, is there any research going on into the use of cannabis? Yeah, there's lots of research being put into looking at marijuana and its effects on cardiovascular disease. So one of the researchers in our division, Dr. Mark Chandy, who's also doing research into kind of the vaping world is is definitely just got some large grants to do research into marijuana and its effects on endothelial function, so the inside of the blood vessels and longer term uh, cardiovascular risks. So again, that data looks concerning in terms of marijuana want to usage, especially from a smoking or a vaping perspective. That leads, I guess, into my next question about treatment. Uh, you mentioned medication and there's some, been some big strides, correct, in medications that we are prescribed to treat it? Yes, absolutely. We're incredibly fortunate in the world of cardiology to have excellent, robust medical trials that have been done on varying uh, medications. And we have a very big database to choose from in terms of effective cardiovascular medications. So generally, we're talking about trying to keep them to a minimum for patient uh, satisfaction and for the you know, the best outcome in terms of everyone taking their drugs on a regular basis. But from a heart attack prevention, we have a number of medications that help from cholesterol treatment. We have pills and injectables that are very effective that are the injectable therapy being newer on the market, like our PCSK9 inhibitors, 
or our uh, small interfering RNA molecules. So those are on market and have been very effective at, at reducing risk. Uh, we have a, numerous diabetes medications and a couple of new classes of diabetes medications that have actually been found to be very, very beneficial in the heart world. And then we're just learning more and more about the benefits of the semaglutides like Ozempic is uh, something that's very popular in the literature, but is, is really starting to understand more from a cardiovascular perspective, not just the weight loss perspective, sort of what the, the benefits of that medication are. I didn't get a chance to mention with in terms of prevention, exercise and diet are a huge part of playing into your reducing your overall risk. So we generally recommend a Mediterranean or a DASH diet. These are diets that are high in fiber and vegetables, low in lean meats, avoidance of red meats, lots of legumes and polyunsaturated fats. So they can make a big difference on what your overall kind of risk factor profile looks like, as well as helpful in controlling weight. And exercise is a huge component of cardiovascular fitness. So when we talk about cardiovascular fitness, we're generally wanting to talk about aerobic exercise. So the recommendation for adults is 150 minutes per week of moderate exercise at a minimum. So generally, we say about 30 to 40 minutes almost every day with a five-minute warm-up and five-minute cool-down. And that's really to exercise the cardiovascular system. And resistance training is an important part of building muscle and muscle helps again maintain body weight but also have you able to do lots of aerobic exercises as needed and that's generally something we recommend two or three times a week so certainly exercise and diet play a huge factor into not only minimizing the risk of coronary artery disease but also managing the other risk factors that are associated with it including diabetes high cholesterol well, I guess in worst case scenario, sometimes surgical intervention is required, correct? We just maybe touch briefly on that. I suppose we think of everything from a, a bypass to a stent, right? Is that some of the some of the options? So generally, when we're investigating for cardiovascular disease, there's a number of different tests that we have accessible to us to sort of try to understand someone's symptoms or their risk. So generally, if symptoms are ambiguous, or we feel the situation is relatively low risk, we can use some sort of stress testing to help to understand risk a little bit better. That can be on a treadmill, a bicycle, or it can be with our nuclear medicine uh, or nuclear cardiovascular doing sort of uh, a stress test that involves CT scans and pictures of where the blood flow goes in the heart. When we're looking at something that maybe is a little bit more specific or someone that presents with, you know, typical heart attack symptoms and have elevated cardiac enzymes, and we're worried about damage to the heart or very high risk, we'd proceed more with an invasive investigation. So that's our coronary angiogram or left heart catheterization that has a number of names. And basically what it involves is looking directly into the arteries of the heart and using dye to see where there's blockages in the arteries. So this is done by an interventional cardiologist. So one of my colleagues who's especially trained in doing angiograms, and they go in through usually the wrist, sometimes the groin into the artery and put wires and tubes up into the heart and shoot dye into the heart and look for blockages. The other side of that uh, is not just a diagnostic procedure, but it's also interventional procedure. And that's where stenting comes into play. So we can uh, put stents in during the those procedures, sometimes diagnostic, sometimes planned 
separately so that they can do something complex and they can do, you know, really interesting things with angiograms and interventional cardiology. We can use mini ultrasounds to look inside the blood vessels if uh, we need to characterize plaques more closely. We can use other kind of imaging, CT kind of imaging inside the vessel again to get a sense of, of what the inside of the vessel looks like uh, and help us to know that a stent is needed or that a stent is being applied properly. And stents are sort of like tiny little scaffolds that get pushed up against the wall of the artery and, and provide an open kind of conduit for blood to flow through. So we sort of push those plaques to the side and, and allow the blood flow to flow more clearly through the vessel. And so if there's a small discrete blockage or a blockage in a certain place in the artery that's amenable to stenting, then certainly that's a great option. In other situations, there are multiple blockages in multiple arteries or blockages in specific areas that are not easy to put stents into. And in certain circumstances, depending on risk factors, bypass surgery can be a great option for revascularization as well. So we work really closely with our cardiac surgery colleagues to understand, have discussions around kind of what the best therapy is. And so that's an ongoing discussion that, that occurs between our division members to try to find the best therapy for the patient. Right. How often do physicians have to resort to surgery? Like, is that sort of 20% of all cases or? Yeah, so it sort of depends on which patients we're talking about. So with our patients with multi-vessel disease, the usual first option is surgery. If there's patients that have fewer vessels involved, then stenting can be an option. Sometimes we do do stenting in multiple vessels. It just really depends sort of on the specific patient's anatomy and surgery. Surgery is also very important for other uh, heart disease, including valvular heart disease. So if someone has valvular heart disease and they need a valve replacement, then definitely surgery is going to be a better option than putting stents in by itself. But I would say, you know, maybe about 30 to 40% of my patient population, which is mostly secondary prevention patients who've had heart events, have had surgery. So it's, it's definitely uh, a very common procedure. And is there a difference between the genders uh, in recuperation? Are women say, more likely to recover quickly and, and better than men or vice versa? Is there any differences there? Yeah, so there are some differences in sort of how women access treatment. So studies that have been published have shown that women are less likely to be referred for more invasive strategies like an angiogram or surgery. And they do tend to have more complications related to those procedures than men do. Part of that when it's been really dissected through has to do with sort of aging comorbidities. So women tend to present older, they tend to have more associated health problems at the time when they're seeking these sorts mm -hmm. of treatments, whereas men tend to be a little bit younger and have fewer comorbidities. So the prevailing thought is that likely is a large driving factor in why we, we see that. But certainly, you know, access to care and recognition prompts these testings. So if that's not as accurate in women as it is in men, then that testing can certainly be less frequent in women uh, than men with the same conditions. So Dr. Heidemann, perhaps is it correct to emphasize that if a person has any concerns about their heart health, they should seek medical advice? 
Yeah, I, th- I think it's good for people to know that if they're feeling unwell and they're concerned about their symptoms, they're persisting or they're new, even if you feel like they may not be related to the heart, might just be indigestion or feeling unwell. If symptoms persist and people are feeling unwell, you know, listen to your gut and get checked out because it is important for people to understand what the symptoms could be. So again, we talked about, you know, nausea, heartburn-like symptoms, pain in the jaw, pain in the neck. And a lot of these symptoms tend to come on first with exertion. So people might notice when they go to bring their groceries in from the car and walk up the stairs that they have some discomfort or pain or you know a strange feeling. And then it goes away once they stop doing that. And we hear very often that patients had no warning And then after a couple of days, you know, they start to think about, oh, you know, I actually, you know, had some pain like that when I was running after my kid or I was, you know, running after the dog or I was bringing the groceries in. And it's really common that we hear that people probably did have some warning, but maybe didn't quite recognize the signs. So I don't want to make anyone, you know, paranoid or send a wave of people to the emergency room. But I think especially from a female perspective, people tend to push off symptoms in favor of kind of doing what they need to do that's in front of them. And it is really important for people to recognize those symptoms and get checked out. So there's no harm in, uh, you know, getting checked out for concerning symptoms. And the earlier we're able to treat heart events, the better off our outcomes are and the better off the long-term prognosis for patients to return to their normal and healthy life. What services are offered at St. Joseph's at the cardiac rehab and secondary prevention program? So uh, the Cardiac Rehab and Secondary Prevention Program is focused at St. Joe's or set up at St. Joe's. We've been at St. Joe's since the early 2000s when it was moved from a different facility and Dr. Neville Suskin has been the medical director there. So we're happy to welcome all of patients after they've had a heart event. So heart attacks, heart failure, valvular heart disease, pretty much anybody who's had some sort of heart event is welcome to be referred and they can be referred for up to a year after their event. So coming into the program, they meet with a multidisciplinary team, which allows us to help patients to gain the skills and the knowledge they need to sort of return to their previous level of functioning and integration into the community as best as we can, and also support them from reducing their risk of having a further event. So we're fortunate. We have three cardiologists associated with the program. We have a wonderful nurse practitioner and our three or four excellent nurses who are our case managers. So that really drives the kind of medical aspect of the program. So we see patients, we titrate medications, we adjust things for symptoms, we try to optimize care for their acute event, but also uh, for prevention. We do exercise stress testing to help with the prescription of exercise. And we have a wonderful team of kinesiologists and rehab trainers uh, that work with patients to help prescribe exercise, progress exercise, and really optimize the work that they're putting in in terms of regular aerobic exercise and resistance training to optimize their fitness. We have a dietitian who helps with patients understanding how to eat a heart-healthy diet and what to do in terms of making changes to help achieve that. Uh, And we have a social worker and often a psychologist associated with the program to help deal with the mental health aspect. This is a chronic disease as all cardiovascular diseases. And so it's something that even though oftentimes patients go in, they get 
get treated and we can discharge them within a couple of days, the long-term effects and the prevention part of things is something that patients have to deal with for a lifetime. And it can certainly, you know, affect people's jobs, it affects, you know, their well-being and how they feel about themselves. And so addressing that sort of aspect of, of things is, is really important and an integral part of what we can offer patients. So working with the medical team, as well as the rehab trainers and the dietitians, we try to provide patients with the opportunity to, you know, gain back their level of functioning, you know, improve their overall risk factor prevention profile, and reduce their risk by about 20 to 25% of having another event. And with some research that was done in our particular program, we can actually reduce the risk of cardiovascular mortality by 50% in patients that participate over a 10-year basis. And I think the one really important thing is this is a one-time, one-shot intervention. It's a six-month program in our case, but we know it has really lasting impacts on people's lives out to 10 years. So those curves, when we have patients who go into rehab and don't go into rehab, diverge really early, and they stay continuing to diverge as time goes on. So I think it's a, it's a really important part of patient recovery. I think it helps to connect patients with their healthcare team and, and really take the time during the recovery period to understand more about their disease and, and how to reduce its impact in the future. Absolutely. And it, it must be terrifying to think that it could happen again. Absolutely. And I mean, that has a number of factors in play with it. You know, we get young patients that come in, have young children, have families, and we get older patients who are holding on to their independence. And all of those things and that fear of, you know, having another event is is something that's good for us to be able to offer steps that they can take to prevent that from happening again. You know, medications are a huge part of that and finding ones that work for patients is really important so that they can continue to take them and get the benefit from that. And also, you know, providing that support from a healthcare practitioner perspective, but also peer perspective. There's a, you know, a number of patients four to 500 patients going in the program at any one time. So there's a large opportunity for peer support. And we're just, you know, reshaping our program as we come out of COVID to be able to offer all the group sessions again and, and working on uh, really being able to provide more opportunity for that peer support because I think it is a really important. And what about the future of, of treatment? I mean, you were talking about some of the new and very efficient drugs that are coming up. Is there anything else on the horizon? Uh, in terms of treatment and prevention? Yeah, so I think in prevention, we're, we're constantly you know, accessing studies and information from our other endocrinology colleagues, from our nutrition colleagues, from our exercise physiologists. So we work closely with uh, the Western team and doing some research into how you know, we can better train patients for exercise. There's, there's constant evolution in the fields because I think it's, it's such a, a large problem that there's a lot of attention that gets put in that area. When it comes to therapies and treatments, you know, certainly it's a very active realm of development. There's oral form of semaglutide that is out on the market now. So this is Ozempic rather than being an injection. Ozempic is semaglutide. So there is a, an oral form of the pill that will be available. And it'll be interesting to see how, how that shapes the landscape because certainly um, the injection has done a large amount to kind of 
shape uh, weight loss medicine and diabetes care and uh, a number of different facets from that perspective. So that'll be definitely interesting to see. I think there's ongoing evolution in terms of the sorts of interventions that we do from perspective of what stents get put in and they're constantly being developed. Our interventional colleagues do trans catheter valve interventions as well. So probably everyone's heard of a TAVI at this point or a trans catheter aortic valve replacement. Uh, This is something that's come up in the last probably decade to be the primary intervention for patients that can't have cardiac surgery on aortic valves. And we're just starting to see the data in transcatheter valve replacement start to get translated into the other heart valves in the mitral valve and the tricuspid valve. So I think that will certainly be an area we'll see a lot more development in in the next uh, 10 years or so. And uh, the technology is constantly, you know, being pushed forward from an interventional perspective with the medications we use after heart attacks as well to help keep stents open to help reduce the risk of bleeding because a lot of what we talk about is is you know trying to keep people who've had heart events from having further events and that has a number of different factors including you know risk factors that we need to manage we need to manage the occasions of of what happened with the stent and keeping bypass grafts open with medication. And then we also look forward to to see what we can do to reduce that risk further. So there's a number of things in this realm that will continue to be coming up and developed, but we're always on the horizon looking at new medications and uh, new interventions. Well, that's a good uh, optimistic note to end on, I think, I hope. Dr. Heidema, thanks so much for joining us today and talking about cardiac health. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. That's it for this episode of the Doc Talks podcast. Thanks for joining us. And join us next time when we'll continue our conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital health care. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Until then, stay healthy. Thank you.